0: let's get started <laughs> all right all right all right that was my best Matthew McConaughey impression so <laughs> welcome to the uh MSL podcast episode seven seven is uh, the best number because Cristiano Ronaldo is well known as CR7 he wears the number seven and today we have a very special episode we have an amazing guest and as always now you can see my face I'm Marco Ionicelli
1: yeah, and you forgot to introduce me. it's Amalia Wampa.
0: Sorry, I was distracted by looking at my face. Sorry. Um,
1: Sorry. <laughs> right.
0: But yeah. Um, now that we're we're here now, now that you can see us, we're gonna get started on, on a, a small recap of what's happened in the world of sports. Um yeah, look, I made a list <laughs> of notes of transfers that I gotta cover. So Lewandowski from Bayern Munich to Barcelona, 50 million plus bonuses. He's a star player at Bayern. Well, he was a star player at Bayern, the star striker. But he's getting older. Bayern sold him for a profit. And yeah, Bayern then signed De Ligt from Juventus for $73 million, um, plus bonuses. And then Cullio went happen? to Chelsea, $41 million. Bala to Roma on a free, Raheem Sterling to Chelsea for $61 million. Well, Pogba on a free to Juventus and Gleison Bremer on a free to Juventus for $45 million. So that's what's happened in the world of soccer. Um,
1: Wait, what are the bonuses if it's already $73 million?
0: Well, they, they give bonuses based on performances. So um, say you win a Champions League or you win the, the league, you, they pay you like a bonus. Say like in the league's case, it's probably going to rise to like $80 million. So it's, it's going to be like $5 million bonuses. And in the case of Robert Lewandowski to Barcelona, there's, I think it's um, certain bonuses that that are gonna be added at the end of the season. So if he completes the season, they're they're like the easy bonuses. And then there's apparently like a hidden bonus in in the clause that says that if Bayern don't um, don't report the the fee as sixty million, they're gonna pay them like ten million extra. So because Barcelona is basically broke, so they they wanna make it as they don't want to make it as suspicious as possible when when they're making transfers which so is weird
1: three million dollars get distributed among the whole team or is it just one person
0: it, it goes to the team um part of the money is going to get like allocated to the transfer mm. uh, to the transfer market but like in the case of Bayern they sold Lewandowski for 50 million and within hours they signed De Ligt for 73 million so they Byron has been posting a profit for the past decade every year. Wow. So then they, they just use part of that profit to cover the rest. But it's, oh, and it's also going to be paid in installments over like five years. So it's $73 million over five years.
1: Hmm. Wow.
0: Yeah, there's so much money involved in sports now.
1: All right, you do the math. 73 divided by four years.
0: It's a lot of money. <laughs> 73 divided by four. I'm not going to check my phone and, and use a calculator. I'm not doing that right now.
1: We are Eisenbrough, so we didn't really take math classes.
0: 18.25 million per year.
1: All right. Okay. Man, it's not
0: that much. It's not that much. I mean, yeah. it's <laughs> Out of the pennies record. on the dollar. Yeah. Um, And then there's also like Formula One this weekend. It's back in France. I'm really excited. It's the home race for um, Esteban Ocon and for Pierre Gasly. And in, in the past two Grand Prix's uh, in, in Britain, it was won by Carlos Sainz. That's the first time he ever wins the race. Mm. So I, I was so happy to see it. Um, Checo Perez got second and Hamilton third, Leclerc fourth, and Verstappen got seventh after having probably the worst race he's had in, in this season after the DNFs. oh wow, harsh words and then, Marco what
1: harsh words
0: well it, it was the worst he's had because like normally he he gets top um in in Austria Leclerc won um and Verstappen got second it was it was a tight race Hamilton got third but that Austin Grand Prix was one of the best ones I've seen in a long time it was it was very competitive and if it kept kept going on like for a couple more, more laps, I think Verstappen would have caught up with Leclerc because Leclerc was having some issues after his teammate Carlos Sainz got a DNF. So it, it it was a great race. It's it's always fun to see. And then this weekend it's in France. It's a great circuit. It's, it's like apparently, like you learned this on Instagram yesterday, it has some things outside the track. Um there's some like blue blue stripes and then some red stripes apparently the blue stripes like slow you down a bit and then the red stripes slow you down a lot so it's to prevent the cars from from oh, crashing wow. into the barriers
1: sounds like mario kart kind of
0: yeah like it's 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 a really really nice sport once you understand it or like once you watch the netflix series because like mm. with ever since the drive to survive netflix series released, people are just turning tuning into that and and they're like, you know what? It's actually like a cool sport. And then the viewership just went up massively. The right. race prices went up massively. It's probably one of the most expensive sports to attend. Especially like in, in Vegas, they're going to make a race. So it's going to be in the Strip. Uh, the prizes for that are huge. And people are already like booking hotels for that. Oh, wow. It's next year.
1: Wait, you said the the track is gonna be in the in the strip? They're not yeah. gonna, they're not gonna build it like in an open desert plain.
0: No, no, they're gonna it's gonna be a, a city circuit. So they're gonna close down the the. Oh, the
1: street. that's crazy.
0: Yeah, like they do one in Monaco, which is the most famous like street circuit. And then there's the one in Abu Dhabi, which is an amazing street circuit.
1: Oh, that's literally Mario Kart. Have you ever played Mario Kart?
0: I did. I I had a childhood. Yeah, yeah. I did play Mario Kart.
1: <laughs> some people don't. I um, I can't relate to them heavily, totally, but
0: it, no, it, it was like a key part of the childhood. Yeah. Mario Kart with friends. Or yeah. that's how like you either like made new friends or you start a fight with a friend. That's true. If passions Absolutely. were, <laughs> if passions were 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 raging, you know, some things you said some things that you didn't mean. You know, I'm just saying.
1: Can I guess what your Mario Kart character was?
0: Yeah, you can guess.
1: Koopa Troopa.
0: Well, no, it was Bowser.
1: Oh my god! <laughs> of course.
0: I don't even know what animal Bowser is. It's like a turtle, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I okay. I guess in the same animal range, Koopa Troopa is the small turtle. So I I, I wasn't too far off.
0: And and my, my most hated character was probably Wario. Oh, my God. How about you? Yes. Uh, Luigi.
1: Bro. <laughs> no. <laughs> I either did Yoshi or freaking um, Princess Peach. <laughs> if that, if that tells you anything. <laughs> Princess Peach and Heather? Yoshi. And then I was Princess Peach one year for Halloween, but the dress was like when I was like little, but the dress was too long that I kept tripping over it and literally slammed me into the ground. So I just like sort of, it, it was, it was not a good Halloween. No sure.
0: mind. Definitely my favorite Halloween costume was when I dressed up as Remy from Red to Wheel.
1: <laughs> yeah, that picture is so good. I'm going to put it on the screen. Okay. To watch. I'll put a picture of me there maybe if I can find it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's probably one of my favorite Halloween costumes. Although it was way too hot, like it it was it was a <laughs> yeah. really hot costume.
1: It was like a Disney mascot costume for like a six year old. Yeah, so...
0: that, and and we were like in, in the playground with.
1: And you're in Miami, like it was kind of not as cold. No, no, no,
0: it was in El Salvador, which was also hot. It Was okay. back when I lived in El Salvador. I was wow. a little kid. It was it was such a long time ago. I think I still have the costume, like, in some box somewhere.
1: I hope, because that was a sick costume. Oh, speaking of races, Marco and I have... This is a sneak peek. Marco and I have signed up for the Spartan race coming in November in Boston, which I just realized, like, it isn't even in nature. Like, it's literally in a stadium. Like, your background... Like, they're making the obstacles. Yeah. It's going to be, like, blarney. Like, it's literally going to be that. Yeah, there's going
0: to be a lot of mud. We, we got to go up up and down the stairs.
1: Yeah. So nice fun.
0: I'm so excited.
1: So, look out I'm for preparing it.
0: for that mentally and physically right now.
1: <laughs> I'm more preparing for it mentally than physically. I'll say that. <laughs> we, we got it. <laughs>
0: I'm prepared. Well, I mean, I'm not running through mud yet. But when, when we get back to UMass, we're going to go... Um,
1: how are we gonna? Okay. How are we gonna train for that in mud?
0: We're gonna go to you know you know the grown up boy scouts the ROTC. <laughs> we're gonna go to their training facilities, whenever it's raining, and we're gonna train there.
1: Or whenever it's raining, we can run up Mass Ave,
0: <laughs> like. We five could four. do that, uh, but um, we definitely we're definitely not jaywalking.
1: Uh, nope, we're not doing that. Did you know though this that they're building new dorm, dorms right on Mass Ave and it's gonna be a climbing gym in there?
0: Oh yeah you told me about it yeah, yeah.
1: this is That's, That's gonna day. be real cool for any UMass students watching that is soon to come but I wonder when we go back if it's gonna be like built because they had the whole summer they don't start working on that they know time's passing so
0: yeah and and and, and there's there's a, a huge demand for dorms, so.
1: I know, then I can transfer out of my Econ Triple and go to a nice new air-conditioned dorm with a climbing gym.
0: Air-conditioned?
1: Yeah, I've heard that some of it's air-conditioned.
0: Oh, but what about Wendy?
1: Wendy, you can have... Actually, no, can I can't. Have the whole room. Basically, for backstory, anyone who's listening, um, me and my best friend got stuck in an Econ Triple. We were like those girls that were best friends. And then we have one unknown roommate who is going to be joining us. But she's really
0: cool. I bet
1: She's she's probably cool. We'll see. Maybe
0: she's too cool.
1: Yeah, she's probably too cool for us, to be honest. But basically, econ triple means that um, there's only two desks and there's two and a half closets and a bunk bed. So basically, I'm living the lap of luxury here for a thousand bucks less. So we'll see how it looks. If you guys follow my main channel I'm Lally and Wampa, I'm probably going to do a dorm tour on it. So go dorm down. tour
0: is going to take like five minutes. <laughs> it's going to be so short. It's
1: like, OK, um, what else you know? is there?
0: It's It's probably going to be like the Borat intro. Like, this is my home. Entry, please.
1: Yeah, and then <laughs> literally leave because I'm going to be on the top bunk, so. Nothing, not a lot of each other.
0: Did, did, did you negotiate with Caroline? Like,
1: Well, the thing is, I want a desk for my big desktop computer. If I get a desk, then it's only right that everybody else gets like a bed close to the ground, you know? So I'd rather get a desk and a closet and a top bunk bed than no desk or closet and like a normal bed. So we will see what happens. <sighs> Hopefully my our mystery roommate is good with compromising as well she might
0: be nice who knows like worst case you make her compromise
1: wow marco what is that what does that
0: mean well i mean you're good negotiating he and 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 maybe you threaten her like like you threatened me when 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 you added me on linkedin
1: oh yeah yeah guys if you want to make friends on linkedin just threaten them if they don't threaten them with something if they don't connect with you
0: yeah, it worked with me.
1: Yeah, it actually did. So, well,
0: so um, we're going to be joined by our guests soon. And we're going to take a quick break. And whenever our guest joins, we're going to be back on it.
1: All right. Let me stop this recording.
0: Well, hi, everybody. We're back. Uh, we're with Buffy Philippelle. She worked with Mark McCormack, uh, who was who is the founder of Who was the founder of IMG, and his um, his impact on the world of sport agency resonates with everybody studying sport management. That he was a revolutionary mind, and yeah, let's get started with some questions with Buffy. Um, could you give us a brief overview of your career?
2: Sure, Marco, thank you for um, having me, Buffy Philippel, and I'm the founder of Teamwork Online, um, probably most noted for being uh, the first woman agent at IMG. So my career started, I graduated from Indiana University with uh, experience in the women's, profet- women's tennis world. Uh, I had been uh, fortunate to play in the USTA Women's National Collegiate Tennis Championships. This is by raising your hand, not by having oh. any particular qualifications. <laughs> uh, and the the job opportunity that, that I wanted to get was something in the sports business and um, applied for a position at Wilson Sporting Goods. After a couple of of turndowns, got a position uh, offered. It got two positions offered one in sales and one in uh, the promotions department, which actually is is the sponsorship department, otherwise known as the sponsorship department now, where we would be responsible for putting tennis rackets in the hands and tennis tennis balls in the hands and places of influential people so that they could. they could demonstrate that playing with our products makes them win events um, or that we are championship quality products. And um, so I got to know an awful lot of the professional tennis players by working with Wilson, uh, worked with Chris Ebert and worked with Tracy Austin and John McEnroe um, and who are all commentators right now. And um, I got to know them really well. Traveled around the circuit to provide them their rackets um, and whatever string and whatever equipment that they needed. We also had a ball adoption, meaning uh, the the Wilson tennis ball was used at all of these um, professional, uh, at amateur, and and professional events, which would be the U.S. Open and all of the national championship tennis events. So I would see all of the players at each of these events by. Knowing all of the players, um, that certainly attracted an interest from IMG. And they said, gee, you know, Tracy Austin was quite the hot property. Uh, She would win the US Open uh, as as a youngster and and people wanted to see whether they could sign her and get her as, as a client. Her older siblings had also played professional tennis. So this was not someone new to the tennis scene, nor the family new to the tennis scene. And um, um, I was working for Wilson in the United States, was transferred to Wilson in Europe and was babysitting, actually, Tracy Austin, as she was running around from tournament to tournament and then eventually going into playing Wimbledon for the first time. And um, so clearly I had a, a pretty good relationship with a, with a family. IMG then, when I was over in London, um, came to me and said, "Hey, we would like to get some more help in our agent tennis agent side, and you seem to know all these athletes, and particularly Tracy Austin." And I said that uh, I really don't think that Tracy Austin is going to go anywhere except um, Donald Dell, who had been working with her, the, the an agency had been working with her. And so I said, "If you if you really want." To get her, I, you know, hiring me is not going to be able to do it. So we ended up uh, um, certainly saying, uh, Who else do you know? And I did know a number of others, and they eventually hired me. So I moved from London to Cleveland, Ohio. People wonder, do you, how, how come you did that? So worked at Wilson and then worked at IMG. And then from IMG, um, I, I, um, started doing agent work and, um, really trying to reach out, meaning to reach out to people and see whether I could help, help land them as clients eventually did landed, uh, a couple of NCAA championship women championship players. And, and then kind of the crown jewel at that time was I landed. Andrea Yeager was the heir apparent behind Tracy Austin. She was, um, I think she was, I don't I, probably about eight, um, I don't know, 16, 17 years old or something like that. And she was ranked number three in the world. (laughs) I mean, it was pretty phenomenal. Uh, These younger kids that were coming up and running through the women's tennis tour at the time. So, um, and then from IMG, um, I um, got married and um, ended up moving with my husband over to Italy and um, did what I was, was actually educated to do. And I taught physical education in a uh, American school in, in uh, Turin, Italy and coached a girls basketball team. Uh, all these Italian girls uh, all, all talking in Italian while they're playing basketball was a little bit uh, different. And, um, and then coming back to the United States and um, joining Corn Ferry International. Um, It was an executive search firm. I was trying to figure out how to get a job in the sports business and didn't know how people got jobs in the sports business Um, and found out that there are ways that other other industries recruit people into the sports business called executive search consultants. And the one executive search consultant who had done the search for Peter Uberoth for the 1984 Olympics was a company called Corn Ferry. It's a very, very large international executive search firm, and so I wrote to Dick Ferry and asked him whether I could join the company, um, and uh, ended up landing at um, at at Corn Ferry um, and uh, and started doing some sports recruiting, particularly into tennis. Um, Um, Found out that there was uh, that the Women's Tennis Association was um, moving to Florida, and the executive director was then not going to to move from California to Florida. So there was an open position. I was able to get Corn Ferry to be able to do a search down there, and thus started really my executive recruiting experience. And and consequently, you know, ended up making making my career in executive recruiting for the next uh, next twenty five plus years. So from Corn uh, Ferry, uh, I was there for about two and a half years, and then uh, joined. Um, uh, and and then my my father passed away in 1987, very very suddenly. And um, after about four months of of kind of. Uh, collecting myself and trying to figure out what to do, you get inspired to think maybe your life is short too. And those are these inspirations to then lead you into um, really making sure that that you're going to make a difference in this world. And um, so I had the idea of, you know, I've, I've got to continue to go out and, and do this work and executive search. And it was it, it was almost given to me. I was feeling pretty low. I'd had some experience in doing executive recruiting. I'd had some clients that I left behind at Corn Ferry and one of them called me up. It was the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association. And they said, Buffy, we're ready to do our search for the head of uh, professional rodeo. And uh, would you be able to do it? And, and uh, I had been working with these people for a while, and I said, sure, I'll be happy to work on it. And so that was then the first search I did uh, um, on my own. Um, I had a little help with Corn Fairy and and got them involved, and, and then did the next one by myself. So um, it just sort of landed in the way it did, Marco. And, and, um, and for that, I'm forever grateful for all the people that were involved with me. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so the next question is, what was one of the most memorable interactions you've had with Mark McCormick?
2: Yeah, I've told this story before, Marco, about, about uh, some times I had with IMG, and we had our meetings at the Union Club, uh, at Cleveland Union Club, and it was actually a men's club <laughs> Um, primarily a men's club women were not able to go up the front stairs up or down the front stairs so i had to go up the back elevator to these stairs and and it's again one of those times where, where women will talk about being the only woman in a room and um it was, it was so memorable to me just because it really showed an awful lot about the diversity and an amazing amount of work that people were doing at IMG. So we had this breakfast meeting. Mark would be at the head of the table. All of us would be on the sides. He would have his fresh squeezed orange juice, and we would all have our rubber eggs and, and rubber bacon that, that, the, uh, that the Union Club served. And he suddenly said, uh, said, okay, here's our meeting. I, I want to talk about how much money we have, we have all made for the company in the last uh, sort of some highlights of how much money we were all making for the company in the last quarter. And the first person would, um, would end up uh, saying something like um, talking about our Super Bowl television rights deals of how we made millions or something on all of our Super Bowl rights deals all over the all over the world. I was flabbergasted. And then the next gentleman would talk about um, uh, representing Bjorn Borg, who out of Sweden. And this gentleman is out of Norway, and he would be talking about how he was um, selling partnerships for Bjorn Borg for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mark had started out the conversation with talking about how he had uh, done a deal with uh, Rolex for X number of dollars for the Wimbledon tournament. So he had laid down this, this uh, uh, amount of money everybody was supposed to, was supposed to be uh, um, putting forth. And then it would come to me, and it was, Buffy, what have you done the last quarter? What was your, your biggest deal you did? And I'd say, I did a $15,000 racquetball deal um, uh, for Heather Mackay. And, and the place was just quiet. (laughs) Everybody was talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in revenue. And I was talking about (laughs) 15,000 and it's one of those moments like you think maybe I got into the wrong room. (laughs) Um, So I I remember that and and I remember that uh, um, I I felt kind of ridiculous, but it was about the only thing I had going at that time, and and nobody even remembers racquetball these days, so um, it 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 still is sort of funny. Uh,
0: Yet yeah, you you've learned a lot of leadership lessons from Mark too, and, and his his way of time management, uh, which I read in in the book what they don't teach you. at Harvard is, is something that really resonated with me and and his professionalism was was amazing.
2: Yes, I think that he certainly showed me a leadership style um, and and what does a leader do? The company was growing immensely at this time and having offices and all over the world, the first thing that that I noticed, we didn't have emails, we had interoffice office communication, and you would get an, an inter office communication of Mark McCormick's schedule. And you would just see all of these places all over the world. Um, it, it, it worldwide travel was okay, but it, it, you know, I mean, it wasn't as extensive as as it's kind of been throughout the last 20-some years. And he was traveling to each one of these offices and meeting with CEOs and and that was pretty amazing that he had a schedule all light laid out for the next 30 days. And he even had his schedule organized for how many minutes it would take him to get from his office down to his car. And he would he would add in how many minutes it took for the elevator to open up, how many steps it took to get from his office to the elevator, from the elevator downstairs, how many steps outside to the, to the uh, outside to his car, and then how many minutes from the car to the airport. I mean, he was incredibly detail organized. He would ask us, and, and this, was, this was real interesting today, and consider, again, we don't have computers, is that we would have to provide him, as the agents provide him, once a month, every single phone call we made and what we talked about in every single phone call. So he had track of what deals were potentially coming in, how much were you selling them for? And he could make comments back to you and say, gee, I think that's too low or have you thought about uh, selling selling this this client for this? It was amazing that we did that um, and that he had all of this information and he read it all and commented it all. Again, you can see all of this through computers now, but it was uh, fascinating that that he was into so much of this detail. And um, and I think that it helped us figure out what we were doing too. So really amazing man, uh, things that I learned from him.
1: Wow, that's just incredible hearing all the detail-oriented um, things that he did. Um, I don't know if any of us can really copy, copy that to the <laughs> extent that he did. Uh, but the next question is, what is the biggest misunderstanding people have about the world of a sport agency, from your perspective?
2: Um, Amaya, thank you so much. Nice to nice to have you on this podcast too. And and I I think that there the the Jerry Maguire movie <laughs> is rather rather inspirational to an awful lot of people. And I I don't know. Do we want to be more like just Tom Cruise? I mean, he's a pretty pretty interesting guy. The misconception is um, is that it is what that movie movie is. I would say that it's an awful lot of babysitting. Um, (laughs) You're talking to all of these athletes. And what tends to happen is that you get rather pulled into their orbit. all of us may have, or maybe some of us, not all of us, but some of us may have an inclination, gee, it would be fun to be famous. And when you're around famous people, you understand how lonesome that world really is, how protected they need to be because of how many odd things that are going on. Um, Andrea Yeager uh, had death threats to her at the US Open, and she was a teenager. Could you imagine being a teenager and going to an event and and having credible death threats on you? Um, she would have people that would send her diamond rings from all over the world and want to marry her. They don't even know who she is. So and and you're you're getting this kind of distorted view of what the public is. I was behind. Um, a player at, at a, 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 a women's tennis tournament, and they liked her so much, they were throwing pens at her to sign things, throwing pens. I mean, this was, this was actually, I mean, you can get hurt this way. And, and so you protect yourself. And as an agent, you get kind of brought into a lot of these things that, um, that they do try to protect themselves and you're part of that sphere. It was actually refreshing not to be around this because you actually had a real life. You could get on an airplane and no one would know who you are. You could go to a, a tennis tournament and no one would know who you are. It, it, it actually was more refreshing. So as much as it seemed kind of neat to be one of those folks, Um, In the long run, it's kind of nice to be a bit anonymous.
1: Yeah, I I could totally see that. Everybody kind of wants the top. They don't really know what the top entails. So we just see that over and over again, um, no matter what genre of fame it's in, music or sports. Right. But one of the last questions is, what are some of the skills and habits that can help sport agents thrive? Especially women, I feel as a fellow woman.
2: Um, I think from the the experience that I learned is what what experience did I take away from that time that could be helpful um, to any of us in the sports business. One is, it was terrific when I walked into their offices. There, I had worked for Wilson Sporting Goods, and I was responsible for giving tennis rackets and and trying to identify top players. And we would just give them the product, uh, the amateurs, a product, or we would actually pay them some money and give them product, negotiate that. On this other side, I had to generate revenue, <laughs> and this was very new to me. And um, I, they said, here's a desk, here's a phone, make something happen. Huh, <laughs> huh, okay. And, and surprisingly, I never sent an email out because, of course, we didn't have emails, but to get the word out that I'd actually gotten this job to the people that I knew at Wilson Sporting Goods. I mean, I think the word got out there when I showed up at the US Open now with a, with a group of people from IMG and saying I've taken another job. But the point was, here's a desk, here's a phone, make something happen. Was really the best thing in, in, in anybody's career in sports being an entrepreneur, that is what's so fantastic about the industry. Here's a desk, here's a phone, make something happen. And you basically have to think of how do I generate revenue to pay for myself? How do I generate revenue that could pay for somebody to work for me? Let's use some pricing schedules of what I've learned at IMG were prices they were giving. So that seems to be some knowledge of pricing schemes? And can I make some money? Uh, fast forward that to Corn Ferry, I learn how to do executive recruiting by here's a desk, here's a phone, make something happen by talking to people with tennis to say, I'm out there. What's great about executive recruiting is every time you're calling somebody to be able to ask them, are you interested in a job? You basically are selling hey, by the way, this is what I do. So it had a built-in mechanism to be able to sell. And I could then sell my services by telling people I'm doing a search for someone else. Here's a desk, here's a phone, make something happen. When I left Corn Ferry, I was back in that same place and I had to make something happen. Here's a search I'm working on make something happen i use the numbers that i was aware of at corn ferry for search numbers and then i charge either something similar or a little less to beat the market so each one of these things like what did i really learn from that experience well you learn how to be able to sell you learn how to generate the revenue yourself and particularly for women i mean i had a young son And I could do this from my house and I can do it from a phone and and it didn't matter use the mute button when he ended up crying. (laughs) Um, And, and so those are the skills that I think many, many women can benefit by here's a desk here's a phone make something happen.
0: And, uh, I think, well, it was great to see how you've learned from, um, from your experience and that's. I think that the the biggest teacher in in the world is experience and once you put yourself out there and you start working that's where you start learning from from doing a lot of the activities that in in this case uh, have to do with sports agency sales skills there I think there there's something that's universal about them that you have to know how to sell an idea in life and then in sports you actually have to sell concepts you actually have to sell um things that re- uh, generate revenue so um one of the last questions I want to ask you is, how did Mark McCormick change the world of sport agency?
2: Um I think, well, first of all, I think he's just an incredible human being of of what his vision of um, uh, of the world of sport. He actually took it uh, looking at uh, entertainers or or suggesting that that um, uh, that sport people could be. Um, heroes and, and in the same vein as, as entertainment people. Um, I think that he, uh, he clearly was competing with Donald Dell at that particular time. Um, there are stories that, that he ended up trying to offer Donald Dell a job to work for him, um, to have this one agency. Um, but the, the, the lasting imprint is, is events um, is 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 highlighting that um, that that these these particularly high skilled athletes provide an entertainment that people want to pay for, and um, it is even more necessary as we're looking today that bringing people together of all different backgrounds is very very helpful in. In the, in the world and, and in our country and in our, in our communities and our neighborhoods, bringing people together who have differing opinions. You're gonna high five somebody that you normally wouldn't necessarily even know. And you're sharing an experience of cheering for your hometown fan, hometown team. And for him to elevate these athletes to such a point um, in his career, and it 's just gone on um, since then and and uh, in the world of of uh, English premier league teams etc is he's just expanded our our appetite for it and you know i I am forever grateful that I had a chance to work with him i'm forever grateful for the University of Massachusetts for having his records there, and you all making um, making them public. You have a website that has communication between various people at IMG. I've referred this to some of my former um, colleagues at IMG to look themselves up and see which letters and things were saved. And particularly, there was one to just highlight again the detail that, that Mr. McCormick sort of Um, instilled in all of us is that if you do a a search for one of of the items that's listed under my name, Buffy Gordon, in the McCormick records is that um, uh, there is an inner office memo that his assistant wrote to me and said, Buffy, we've been noticing that you've been spending a lot of money on courier services, particularly the $16 uh, courier service to New York you know that if you uh, sent something by mail, it would only cost you a few cents to be able to get that document there. Could you please explain yourself? So uh, if, if Mark was interested in how come we were spending $16 on something that I was sending off to New York, you can imagine he was pretty detail-oriented. And for that, I've probably taken that piece of information um, uh, to all of my businesses thereafter.
1: Right. Yeah. It's just incredible. Like you can really tell certain things about someone by how they pay attention to the smaller things in life. And that's definitely like he brought that into the bigger picture. Um, but yeah, so we just want to thank you again for coming on. Uh, your perspective is highly, highly valued. Uh, we were just always, we always wanted to bring you on as soon as we started the podcast. And um, you were actually, when we listened to you in our intro to sport class, you're the only Uh, speaker that I really remember and I was like oh man like that was like I I, for some reason just made an impact on me so thank you for that and um, we were wondering where can listeners find and connect with you online?
2: Um, Teamwork online www.teamworkonline.com and uh, at the bottom of our website we have a link that says it has a link to my name down there and and my email address buffy at teamworkonline.com. So uh, thank you to all the UMass students. You all are fantastically educated, great folks. Thank you for taking Mr. McCormick's papers, Um, having a little bit of mine in there too. And what a tremendous education you all are getting. And we greatly appreciate you
1: all being part of our Teamwork U program. Thank you so much for creating the Teamwork Online program.
0: It's really helpful. It helped me get my internship that I'm doing this summer. It's if, if you want to get into the sport industry, that's definitely something that you have to check out.
2: Thank you. www.teamworkonline.com. We appreciate it. UMass students, have a have a great summer and we look forward to seeing you in the fall and seeing where all of you all are going to be making leaders in the sports business. We look forward to seeing where you go. We'll be here to help. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.